Let's take a look in our book. This morning we're going through the last 12 books of the Hebrew Scriptures and we find ourselves in Micah. Great book. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Micah. Thank you for these seven chapters that are so convicting. May the Word of God speak to us. May the Word of God minister to us. May the goodness of God fall upon us in Jesus' name as we open your word. In his name we pray. Micah, chapter 1, there's seven chapters here. It's right after Jonah and just before Nahum. One of the resources that you really need is to have a friend during difficult times a friend during difficult times who will not only speak the truth in love, because that's a part of it, but awful will offer words of encouragement. Words of encouragement. Now, anybody can pick out all the things that you've been doing wrong. Isn't that true? <laughs> now, you can get almost anybody can tell you all the terrible things you're, you're doing wrong. Uh, your worst enemy can do that. Uh, those kind of people, if that's the kind of information you get from them, it's like they're not a friend, they're just a thorn in your flesh. Somebody who's always uh, pointing out your shortcomings. But a friend is one who speaks the truth in love, but also is in a way of um, helping you and encouraging you during difficult times. About 15, 15, 16 years ago, uh, there were some folks who attended our church for a long time, and they were good friends of mine. And I kind of got into a brouhaha with them over their young son. There was a misunderstanding and some things coming. And they did not agree with what I, uh, how I acted in response to what their son had done. And so they, in a huff, got up and left the church. And they were instrumental people in the church. And they were uh, longtime friends. And I was so hurt that I was thinking of resigning. I thought, that's it. I am so done. I am a failure. I have. Have you ever had one of those times when you just... I was thinking of resigning. I was thinking of resigning. I can't... I've, I've lost it. Well, I had a couple of the fellows and the leadership team come alongside me and say, Neil, didn't turn out perfect, but we are with you, and we know that what you were trying to do was the right thing. And a couple of those guys, a couple of friends that I had, made the difference for me during that difficult time. We need friends like that, amen? That's the kind of friends we need. Because all of us have those times where we just want to give up. Tired. I can't take this. And we need friends like that. Well, the book of Micah is like that. Now, if you look in verse 1, he was a prophet that ministered to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were the kings of Judah. And if you look in the charts, in your Bible dictionaries, you'll find out that those kings were around towards the end of the 8th century B.C., around that time. Um, 
The kingdom of the north and the south were still intact. This is before their exiles. And Micah is ministering to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, in the book of Micah, the message is basically one of judgment. We're pretty familiar with that theme as we've been going through these books. One of the reasons a lot of people have problems with the, the, these last 12 books is because what? You turn the page, it's judgment. Turn the next page, judgment. It's turn the next page, judgment. Isn't that true? Uh, there's a lot of judgment in here. You know why? Because the people of Israel are going south. <laughs> and God was sending these prophets to speak to them and try to get their attention. So the book is filled with judgment. Matter of fact, there's three basic messages of judgment. But I'm, I'm not going to spend most of my time here because nestled within these three basic messages of judgment are some real words of encouragement for, for people who are going through a very, very difficult time. So what I want to do is um, I'm going to look at the three basic messages of judgment, but then I want to focus in, nestled right in there, is some real words of encouragement. And that's what we need during difficult times. So let's take a look. Okay. First, as you look in your outline, there's three messages of judgment. We'll go through them really quickly. I'll let you peruse them in your private time. The first is found in chapters 1 and 2. It begins, Hear, O peoples, all of you. And he's speaking a word of judgment, chapters 1 and 2. He details, details what they've done wrong and <laughs> what the Lord is going to do in response. Now, all three of these messages of judgment focus in on all the aspects from every side of judgment. So it's not all doom and gloom. Okay? That's the first message. The second message is found in chapters 3 through 5. Chapters 3 through 5, and it starts again with the same words, here now. And this time, he's talking to the rulers of the people. Notice, heads of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel. He's talking to the political leaders and the religious leaders. And here he is going to speak of the blessings that will follow judgment. So it's not all doom and gloom. So first of all, in the first two chapters, he talks about judgment is coming. But then he talks about following the judgment will be blessings. Okay? Chapters 6 and 7 are the next section, which concludes the book. And there, there's an indictment, an indictment for the sins of the people but also assurance of forgiveness. Now notice how the chapter 6 begins. Once again, here now. Same phrase, here now. But this time he's making it to the mountains. And the commentators say, what is he, why is he speaking to the mountains? Well, generally what they're thinking is, his point is that I'm making reference to all the people. Everybody be witness of what I'm about to say. Okay? So you have three messages of judgment. Judgment is coming. Chapters 1 and 2, the blessings that will follow judgment, verses three, uh, chapters 3 through 5, and then the indictment of sin and the assurance of forgiveness, chapters 6 and 7. However, nestled within these chapters are two messages of hope and direction. Now, most of you know that one of my favorite pastors is Pastor Chuck Swindoll. He was the pastor for many years up at EV Free in Fullerton. He's on the radio. 
You can also get them on the internet on insight.org. What I love about Pastor Chuck, what I love about Chuck Swindoll, is he's an excellent Bible teacher, just a good man. He really knows how, he really knows the scriptures. But also, it's not all happy, clappy sermons, because he can, he can, he'll lay it down. He'll, you know, he'll just convict you of sin. But then in two minutes later, he'll tell a story that'll either get you crying or get you laughing. So it's all not all gloom and doom. It's not all hell and damnation. But yet it's not all happy, clappy. He's got a mixture. There is some conviction, but there's also at the close of the sermon always an application. An application. Love that, Pastor. Well, what we've got here is the same kind of thing. There's some conviction. There's some judgment. Yeah, okay. But right in the middle are two messages. A message of hope and a message direction. Let's take a look first at the message of hope which is found in chapter 2 verses 5 verse chapter 5 verses 2 through 15. Excuse me, chapter 5 verses 2 through 15. And this message is a promise of a ruler, a promise of a ruler who, by the way, is coming from the Lord. Let's take a look. Verse 2. But as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've seen that verse before. Where have we seen that verse before? Matthew chapter 2. Remember the story? The Magi come from the east. They, they said, we've seen his star. We've come to worship the newborn king of the Jews. So where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. They show up. They see Herod the Great. He hears about it, and his thing is, says, the scripture says he's very troubled because he doesn't have the answer. So what does he do? He goes to the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them, uh, this Messiah they're talking about, where is he going to be born? Because he's got an, another little plan that he's working. But that's another story. And so they say, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They quote the exact verse that's before us this morning. So the Magi say, great. And they head south, just a little bit south of Jerusalem. And they come to the town of Bethlehem. And you'll never guess who they find. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is his going forth or from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's, where this, that's what this verse is about. That's where you've seen the verse before. However, it doesn't end there. The rest of the chapter, all of chapter 5, talks about this ruler from God who's coming. Oh, okay. Now, as we look at the balance of the chapter, you're going to see one thing. you see right away. It doesn't seem to be talking about Jesus when he was here on this earth. There's no mention of coming the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. There's no mention of that. No mention of his death and resurrection. No mention of his wonderful preaching. No mention of his incredible healing ministries. None of that is mentioned. But it's still talking about this ruler and what he will do for Israel when he comes. So if we look at this passage with a little bit of understanding from the New Testament, we see that chapter 5, 
verse 2 is talking about Christ's first coming. And chapters three, chapter 5, verses 3 through 15 are talking about his second coming. His second coming. And so what we find in, in verse 3 through 15 is a description of what the Messiah will do when he comes back to earth. Let's take a look. Six things, six things that are written. We'll move really quickly. Verse 3. Therefore, talking about he, this Messiah, talking about Jesus, therefore he will give them up until the time when she who was in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. First thing the Messiah will do, he will reunite and restore the nation. He will reunite and restore the nation. Now, don't get tripped up when it says she who is in labor. He's not talking about Mary there. What he's talking about is Israel and going through the labor, the pain and the anguish that Israel went through until their nation was born again. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the dysphoria, the fact that the Jews were all scattered and were through incredible anguish. But when he comes back, he will restore the nation of Israel. That's what he's talking about. It'll be like having a new baby. For you, you forget the pain of the labor, and they'll be brought back again. And we see this even beginning to ta- take place today. Not completed, not completed, but it gives us a sign that we're very close to the end times. That's the first thing. Second, verse 4. is the second thing the Messiah will do. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Verse 4 shows us, secondly, that he will care for his people and give them security. He will care for the nation and give Israel, for the first time in their history, real security. Why? Because he'll be the king of the world. He'll be the ruler of the world. And he'll watch over and protect his people as never before. Third thing the Messiah will do, verses 5 through 9. This one, still talking about this one who was born in Bethlehem, will be our peace. When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise up, raise against him seven shepherds, eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod at his entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation which do not wait for man or delay for the Son of Man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. Verses 5 through 9, he will destroy Israel's enemies. He will destroy Israel's enemies. Now, Assyria at that time of Micah was the major enemy, okay? But Assyria is not, no longer a country. But you'll never guess what? The land of Assyria now encompasses the land of a land called Persia or Iran. Isn't that incredible? You could fill in, rightly so, you could say, 
And he, the Messiah, will deliver us from the Iranians. <laughs> and when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Interesting in light of all that's going on right now. Fourth thing, verses 10 and 11. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. What's the point here? The Messiah will purge Israel of their reliance on military power. He will purge Israel. Israel now and even then, back in Micah's day, was very dependent on their own strength. But when the Messiah comes, he will show them that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Verses 12 through 14. The fifth thing that the Messiah will do. I will cut off your carved images, your sacred pillars from among you, so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your ashram from among you and destroy your cities. Fifth thing that he will do, he will destroy all false worship in Israel. All false worship in Israel will be ended. Verse 15, the last thing, and I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on all the nations which have not obeyed. He will judge the nations who oppose him. He will judge the nations who oppose him. It says in Revelation 19 that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a message of hope for Israel. When times are hard, I don't know about you, but sometimes if you're having a really bad week, if you just have something you look forward to at the weekend, it can get you through. Isn't that true? You know, if, you're, if Monday or Tuesday has really gone south for you, what do you look at? But if you know you're going to get away for the weekend or maybe go to a nice dinner with your wife or your husband or something you can really look forward to, it kind of gets you through. That's the point here. They were going through some hard time, but there's hope. There's hope. Now, for me, as we look around at our country and where we're going, morally, we seem to be collapsing. There seems to be almost an anti-Christian spirit. Have you noticed that lately? There's almost an anti-Christian spirit. Not foistered by, by any political party or anything. It just seems to happen. Everybody seems to be, well, let's put down the Judeo-Christian values that are so precious for our country. Financially, it doesn't seem like either political party is anywhere interested in the needs of the people, but only their own person. The congressmen and the senators, the president, everybody seems to be thinking about themselves rather than the people who are unemployed and suffering. Isn't that true? Do you sense that, where our country is going? What that does for me, it makes the promise of his second coming even sweeter. Amen? It makes the assurance of my salvation even sweeter. That's what messages of hope do. Now, one other point before we go to the next uh, message. If verse 2 is true, and it is, isn't it? Did verse 2 happen just the way it was said? Yes. Okay, here's a little thing. If verse 2 is true and was fulfilled... How about verses 3 through 15? Could they be very far off? No, 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 no. If verse 2 has been fulfilled, 
I'm putting my trust that as verse 2 was literally fulfilled, so too will be verses 3 and following. Amen? We have confidence in that. Okay. The next message is a message of direction, and I call it a revelation of forgotten truths, and that's found in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. At this time, having received hope, the thought would be, well, if that's true, what does the Lord require of me? You know, what's required? What does the Lord, what does he expect from me? That's what we see here. There's basically four parts to this message. Let's take it and just march right through the verses. Verse 6, four parts of this message, verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings or with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? First thing he says here is that the Lord is not pleased with strictly outward religious behavior. The Lord is not looking for just outward behavior. See what he says here? Verse 6 talks about what's required in the Bible. Verse 7 talks about something that he's never, ever been interested in. Okay? That's not the point. The point is that if we just are interested in outward religious behavior, he's not interested. That doesn't, that's not what he's looking for. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, it says, I'm sick of your, your offerings and your feasts. They disgust me. And he goes on. He says, why? Because your hands are covered with blood. Because they were just showing up to do their religious activities, but their heart was far from God. God is not interested in our just coming to church. That's not what he's about. What he's interested in is obedience that comes from the heart. Remember we talked about that last week? That God does not, is not partial what, what does that mean? Looking only on the external. He's not only looking on the external, he's looking at our heart. So he's not interested in just strictly religious activities. That doesn't warm his heart. He's looking for an obedient heart that obeys him. Verse 8. This is where I get the revelation of forgotten truths. Notice what he says. He has told you, O man. What is written in this verse is nothing new. <laughs> If, if you go to back to Deuteronomy, read the whole book of Deuteronomy, what he says here in verse 8 is just a simplification of everything that he said throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It's nothing new. They've known it, but they have what? Forgotten it. They've ignored it. He says, I've already told you what's required. Now, Jesus was asked by a lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember that scripture? And he said, greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus goes on, he says these words. And in this saying, on these two commandments, fulfill all the law and the prophet. So from a Christian point of view, from a New Testament point, this is not new. Jesus talked about it. From a Hebrew point, this is not new. Deuteronomy is filled with this kind of stuff. Nothing new here. Look at the second half of verse 8. Okay, 
He's told us something, it's not new. But what is it about these things that he's about to say? Well, he says two things. First, I've told you, old man, what is good. The things he's about to say are good. Now this word, good, I looked it up, essentially means beneficial. I've told you these things that are beneficial to you. If you'll do these things, they're beneficial. They'll give you benefits. That's his point. Now, if you thought about that, then if you don't do these things, they'll be not beneficial. Did you ever watch that program? Um, I've occasionally, I don't watch it all the time, but going through, I don't even know if it's on anymore, Cops. Did you ever watch Cops where they, have the, they follow the cops and they go to different places? And some of these people that they, you know, they're dealing with, they're doing drugs or drinking or driving or whatever they're doing, their lives are a disaster. Have you ever, just, I mean, it's like, oh, I can't believe they're living like this. Why is it that they're, they're not receiving the benefits? <laughs> Why is their lives are such disasters? Right here. I've told you what's beneficial. If you don't want to pay attention, your life will be a disaster. That's his point. And he goes on. I've told you in the past what's good and then what the Lord requires of you. Now you run into some legalists. They'll give you a list, amen, of all the things that they think God wants you to do. (laughs) Big list, okay? Those are legalists. Then there's other people. You might have a list of yourself of all the things that you think God wants you to do. But here... Pretty simple. This is what I like. It's really simple. He says, I'm telling you, this is what I, the Lord, want you to do. No big list. It's really simple. Jesus got it down to two things. So, here's what the Lord requires. Now, what are we talking about? Well, then, towards the end of the verse, there's three things. Three things that require the Lord requires of you. First, to do justice. To do justice. What does that mean? It means to be fair in all our dealings with people. We are to be fair with all of our dealings with people. Now, if you look at the book of Micah, throughout the book, that was not happening in Micah's day. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They rob a man and his house and a man and his inheritance. What they were doing was not justice. They were not being fair in their dealings. God wants you What does the Lord require? First, he wants you to be fair in all your dealings with the people that you do business with, the people that you work with, the people that are in your family, the people that are in your neighborhood, the people that are just your friends. He wants you to deal with them fairly and not take advantage of them. That's what God wants you to do, and it is beneficial for you. 
Second thing that God wants us to do, he wants us to love kindness. What does that mean? He calls us to meet the legitimate needs of those around us. He calls us to meet the legitimate needs of those around us. That was not happening. That was not happening in Micah's day. Look with me in chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, talking about Israel, who builds Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divide divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. The Lord calls us to meet the legitimate needs of those around us and not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to those things. Finally, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require? Do justice, love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. To walk in fellowship with him in humility. In humility. We talked about that two Sundays ago. Because the Bible says in James and also 1 Peter that God is opposed to the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. That wasn't taking place in Micah's day. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. One more time. Chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, says, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. He calls us to walk humbly in fellowship with him in humility. Okay, what's going on here? Do you see that each one of these requires faith in God? Do you see that? Now, how are you going to do justice? How are you going to be fair in all your dealings? Well, everybody else is cheating. Everybody else is taking advantage. Everybody else is cheating on their taxes. Everybody else is giving wrong bids. Everybody else is not providing the work that they said they were. How are you going to be fair in all your justice? There's only one way. You have to say, God, I'm trusting you. Isn't that true? You have to have faith in God in your everyday business. How are you going to provide for all the needs that you legitimate, not, not this hokey pokey uh, sham kind of thing, but how are you going to meet the needs, legitimate needs of those around you? How are you going to do You know, we're just barely making ourselves. How are we going to do that? You have to do what? You have to have faith in God. You have to have faith in God. You see, it all comes down to faith. How are you going to walk with God? How do you begin? You begin a walk by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And him and him only. You see, all of these things that he calls us to do are rooted and grounded in a faith walk with him. Faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God and the word of God calls us 
to put our trust and our reliance in him. Not only for our salvation, but every need that we have. And so the question is, he has told you what is good and what is beneficial. He's already told us. Jesus told us, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures speak over and over again of a necessity to put faith in God and have that faith expressed in how we treat each other. It's the hallmark of everything that the Bible speaks about. Okay, I'll end with this. One of the things that we do here, um, we passed out, where is it? Here, Bible reading. You can read through the Bible. We gave you one way you can read through, read through the Old Testament, New Testament. In one week, here's the New Testament. Got all these things. We passed it up. There's some in the counter. And the reason I say that is 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Did you see that scripture fits right in with this passage we're looking at? Why? Because right in the middle you have uh, correction and teaching. That's the, the judgment passages. But on the top, but on the top, is the teaching, the teaching of the coming of Messiah. And then uh, on the bottom, on the bottom is training in righteousness. So it's kind of like a sandwich. You got the judgment in the middle, you got the teaching and training in righteousness. And you need, you need that every day because he has told you. But you know what the problem with this? us? We're just like the Israelites, aren't we? We have a tendency to forget. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. What is the Lord requiring of you? What is the Lord requiring? Not a big long list, but he's calling us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Pray with me, please. Simple words for simple people. (laughs) but so hard to do in this world where it seems like many people have neglected this book or walking away from this book will put aside this book will deny its truths will say that we're we've learned and we don't need this book anymore and yet and yet and yet as that becomes more evident in our society it seems like our country is coming apart at the seams. And he's told us, he's already told us what's required and what is beneficial. Lord, help us. Lord, help us as Christian people hmm. not to forget, not to put aside, but to make it part of who we are, how we treat each other, and how we live by faith with you. In Jesus' name.